This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire. By famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. Hello and welcome to Series 5, Episode 1 of Out with Susie Ruffle. First of all, hello. I hope that you're well. I hope that uh, wherever I'm joining you, you're in a good place. First off, apologies from me for this series being a little bit later than I suggested it would be um, at the end of the last one. Um, I hoped that it it would come out a bit sooner, but things have just been very busy and I've been doing my best to curate a series for you with as many people uh, from different sections of the queer community and with stories that maybe we haven't heard before and so whilst I appreciate it's been a little bit longer than anticipated hopefully it'll be all the better for the time that I've had to curate it. Some of you may know this because you might listen to Like Muddy Friends my podcast with Tom Allen But part of the reason that it's been so delayed is that for quite some time now, I've been a mum. I am a mum. And Alice and I became mums a a while ago. And it's something that I didn't want to talk about publicly. And I still don't really want to talk about it publicly other than to say that I I am a mum and I'm loving being a mum. And we have an incredible daughter who I am just so in love with. And... I wanted to share it with the listeners of this show, mainly because I know that lots of you are part of the LGBTQIA plus community. Lots of you have uh, maybe have children or are connected to our community some way, or maybe you just want to be an ally. But I thought maybe some of you might be excited for me and some of you might be hopeful of one day becoming a parent and maybe uh, this visibility might be nice for you. So uh, yeah, whilst I'm not going to talk about it in a, in a particularly public way, mainly because I don't know whether she's a show off like me yet. She might not like her story being out in the public eye. Um, my wife, Alice, is is quite private and I think it's good to respect that about children. I think it's up to people what they want to do with their own kids, but that's what we want to do with our little one. So that's another part of the reason why it's been quite some time since I recorded because, oh, it's quite tough juggling a career and uh, work stuff and a child and a wife and a relationship and making sure that, as you can probably guess, my wife and my daughter come along before anything else. And so it's been a busy time for us. So forgive me, but we're back 
and I'm sure knowing what my fantastic listeners are like I'm sure you will understand okay I've got a fantastic episode for you today I'm really excited about this one I think it's really brilliant I recorded it earlier today and yeah I absolutely love Dr Ranj Singh I think you're going to love him too but before that I'm just going to share one email and then we'll get into today's conversation Dear Susie, I discovered your podcast in January 2021, one year into the pandemic. It's now 2022, pandemic year two. And just to add a little spice to the world, a war has started not very far from where I live. Of course, climate change is still a thing. It's difficult not to get worn down and hopeless. I don't want to dwell on all the horrible, overwhelming stuff I sometimes have nightmares about. I want to talk to you about your uplifting and inspiring podcast and how it accompanied me through my coming out of 2021. I've been wanting to write this email for a very long time, but I never got round to it. I guess I needed to contract COVID to be stuck in my apartment for a week to finally send it off. I'm a little drunk because I'm bored and lonely and a bit sick and still confined, but it's okay. Writing to you puts me in a good mood. I've I've often sent an email when I've had a drink and I think it's okay as long as it's to someone that you like and that likes you. And I, and I definitely like you, so don't worry. I am a 28-year-old cis woman and have dated guys most of my adult life. I always considered myself an ally to the LGBTQIA cause, and since teenagehood I have been surrounded by many members of the queer community, my best friend from school and university, both my aunt and uncle, my flatmates, the list goes on. All this is to say the concept of there being different kinds of genders and sexualities in the world was something I was familiar with. But when it came to myself, I refused to admit I had any right to feel like I belonged to the queer community. I was an ally, nothing more, nothing less. I was supportive of the community's victories and I listened to my friends' grievances and their hopes. But never did I consider myself to be part of this. I lived with the unshakable certainty that I was straight, even though I perfectly knew since the age of 12 I longed to be with a woman. For some reason, my brain bypassed the absurdity of this weird logic, the logic that said I could both be straight and like people the same gender as I. Simple, right? Until January 2021, I was Skyping with two friends and we were talking about our dreams and fears for the year to come. And one of them said, I want to own my bisexuality. I felt hot, then cold, and then my hands went clammy and my heart beat faster and faster. And then I heard myself say, me too. Oh Lord, what have I done? We started talking and talking some more. And I slowly realized with a mixture of both horror and joy that I'd been repressing and belittling an incredibly important part of myself. One year later, I realized that I had been erasing this part of my identity ever since I was a child. The horrible sing-song that had been going round in circles in my mind went something like this. Why make a fuss about liking a woman? You can simply pass the straight and be done with it. If I make a bit of an effort, I can almost just about fit in the box society is trying to push me into, so why complain? I've always downplayed my attraction towards women, second-guessing it my whole life. If I like men, I can't possibly like women too, right? And even if I do, it can't be as worthy as any kind of love I will feel for a man, right? I shuttered away my attraction towards women in a closet, conveniently forgetting about it. It became a personality quirk I hid from most people. Something a little odd and not very noteworthy. Dear Susie, your podcast has taught me so many things. It has unveiled so many engraved behaviours I didn't even know I had. I have felt so buoyed by the stories of the wonderful people you interview. Being bisexual, you can pass as straight. But passing as straight means crushing a tiny part of yourself every single day of your life, smothering them with a pillow and smiling a thin plastic smile. Passing means nodding whenever someone refers to the future man you will meet and marry and have babies with. Passing means talking about queer rights like it doesn't concern you and never will but still be passionate about it passing means watching two women holding hands in the street and wishing that you could be that brave and hating yourself for being so weak 
But Susie, things are better now, so much better. I watch my eyes in the mirror and I know that I love women. I know I love men. And I know that right now I feel oh so more confident holding a woman in my arms than a man. And I know that that's okay. Hell, I know that it's more than okay. I know that it's beautiful and that is who I am. It's so wonderfully liberating. Things started to make sense more and more. I remember my first crush on a girl. Her name was Victoria and she had beautiful, long, wavy hair and blue eyes. I was five. I remember my first crush on a boy. His name was Lewis, a little boy who would constantly tease me and make me cry. I was seven. I vividly remember a gym class in middle school. I was walking towards the climbing wall to the sound of the radio blasting out from overhead in the speakers in the gym, the song I Kissed a Girl and I Liked It by Katy Perry. It was 2008, I was 13. Now, I know the song is terribly flawed, but at the time I remember thinking, oh, how I wish I could do that. And I remember being ashamed of thinking that. I remember there being a talk about gay rights at school. I remember sitting in the auditorium and listening to the speaker saying that some of us were gay and that was okay. And some of us might not know yet and that we discover it later. And I remember sitting there scared and terrified, praying and thinking over and over again, please not me, please not me, please not me. Six years ago, my first thoughts after breaking away from my last serious heterosexual relationship were relief. Now I can live in Berlin, where I currently live. Now I can date a woman, which I currently do. I remember thinking those thoughts, being hopeful, but also not knowing how to get there. The year 2021 was a wonderful, liberating year. Now I understand where my internalised homophobia comes from. I've realised that my family had a hard time with homophobia and they still struggle with it. My parents and my brother have been completely supportive, which I'm incredibly grateful for. Coming out has also mean I've had to turn my back on a once dear friend. It's hard but I'm coming to terms with it. In the last months, I have realised there were more prejudices in the environment than I thought, and I have come to realise how many wonderful, caring and supportive people I'm surrounded by. I'm now dating a wonderful woman and it feels so right. I'm incredibly grateful for your podcast, for the city I live in. Which better place is there than Berlin for being queer? For my friends and my family who have accompanied me on this unexpected, liberating journey. Had someone told my 14-year-old self back in the gym in the southern France that I would one day be in love with a woman and hold hands with her in the street, out and proud, I would have been confused and afraid, but most of all, amazed. Thank you, Susie. Keep up the amazing work you do. Lots of love from Berlin. And that's from Anna. And I just was so moved by that email. I just thought it was so gorgeous. And I think it's so important to, I think it, we mentioned it on Jess Foster Q's episode, but you know, sometimes your sexuality comes to you at a later date and it can change or, you know, it's never too late to explore that part of yourself. And it sounds like you're in a really good place now, Anna. And also I thought it was really nice to get an email about 2021 being a good year for someone, you know, how, liberating it was for you and it was actually I mean it was a obviously there was a pandemic which was awful but there was lots of joy for me and and Alice as well and so I thought that would be a nice thing to share and if you want to get in touch with me please do I look forward to sharing these emails and I look forward to hearing more from all of you the email is hello at com. Okay, let's get into today's conversation. I loved this chat. I love Dr. Ranj. He's such a nice guy. He's so thoughtful and his answers were so considered and it was just such a joy having this chat with him. I could have spoken to him for hours and he's incredibly busy at the moment and I was so touched that he found the time to come and chat to me. I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Here it is, my chat with the brilliant Dr. Ranj Singh. 
What a wonderful guest I have got for you today. Dr. Ranj Singh, you will have seen him as the resident doctor on ITV's This Morning, dazzling in sequins on Strictly Come Dancing, presenting the BAFTA award-winning CBB show, Get Well Soon, or from his many children books, or his cookbook, or his ITV series, Dr. Ranj Encore. It's his calm, reassuring charm that has made him one of the nation's favourite doctors. Indeed, during the COVID-19 pandemic, he took a step away from the limelight to support the NHS as a paediatric emergency medical specialist. He is also an advocate for LGBT rights, winner of the Attitude TV Award in 2019, speaking openly and honestly about his journey in Attitude magazine and Gay Times, which has no doubt helped thousands of people feel more comfortable with who they are. So what a fantastic guest for us to have today. Welcome to the show, Ranj. Wow, thank you for that. <laughs> the listeners know I only ever have people on the podcast that I genuinely want to talk to. I only make like one series a year, and so I, I'm always just reaching out to people that I genuinely believe are, you know, making step forwards, not just for our community, but positive, good folks that oh, I want to. That, that basically, I'm, I'm slowly trying to create a, a friendship group where I'm just collecting all these fabulous gays to hang I out with. Come to your dinner parties. It's going to be that's amazing. That's fine. That's fine. How are you? I'm good, thank you very much. I am sorry, I'm a bit croaky because in the mornings I'm like this. Fine. I'm like this. The it's a little is, Barry White. I the, like it. The coffee is yet to kick in. Um, I'm good. I'm good. I'm uh, running around like a blue backside fly at the moment. You can swear if you every, want. You can say everybody us. is. Yeah, um, and I think we're very lucky to be able to do that. So. Yeah. Are you obviously the pandemic must have been different for you than it was yeah. for lots of yep. us who were like, oh, I'm I'm at home and I'm bored and I'm trying not to do anything <laughs> and I'm. Are you still sort of getting over that franticness of what yeah. the last, I guess, two years two have been years, like? Right? Yeah. Um, so oh, we can't go anywhere without talking about the pandemic. I know it's boring. I mean, we don't have to. <laughs> we can put a pause in that and we can go somewhere else if you like. Uh, so the pandemic was a gear shift yeah. for me and mm. for a lot of other people. But And it just meant that when it came to the media stuff and the telly stuff, that mm. kind of quietened down. Yeah. But obviously the other side of my job, the medical stuff, all picked up yeah so and I was very lucky because I could switch yeah. from one job to the next so many of my friends who are performers actors theatre professionals mm. artists they had nothing they just got kind of like left yeah. behind and I felt awful about that um but yeah it, I, I feel like I'm getting my footing again now now that things are kind yeah. of entering a next phase as it were yeah again having a chance to breathe even though you're yes slightly panting <laughs> because you're so bloody busy slightly panting <laughs> um but it's nice it's nice that we're learning to move forward in because mm. for a long time it felt like we were stuck yeah absolutely and i think that's the thing isn't it it's just working out how we do it now because yeah you, you can't stay stuck no, we can't, stay we can't. Stuck. but we also now have to, I think, be very mindful that we're dealing with a fallout of something as mm -hmm. well. Yeah. And we almost have to be, and I know you were talking about positivity, we almost have to be extra nice and kind to each other right now. I think so. Because people need it. I think so. And I think just, I think like, I mean, not that we'll go into this especially, but I think like the mental health crisis that will mm. almost certainly come out of this pandemic, I think just being a bit kinder to people, giving yes. people a bit more... You know, allowing people to not be perfect is Absolutely. okay. That's it. That's it. I, exactly it. I think acknowledge our mistakes. None of us are perfect. Yeah. The world's a very imperfect and difficult mm. place at the moment. So let's not add to that. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Well, I really appreciate you making time. Um, My for, pleasure. For, for it's an honour. Honestly, today. genuinely well, an honour. Well, that's very nice of you to say. Um, so often we start with the podcast sort of chronologically. So I know that you grew up in Kent. Yes. Whereabouts in Kent? 
So a place called Medway. Yeah. The Medway Town. Oh, do you no, know it? Because of being a stand-up, you keep oh, yes. everywhere. Have you gigged in Chatham? Yes, I've done Chatham House. <laughs> and let me tell you, that gig was quite spicy. People uh, were a little drunk. And I think when I came out, they were like, oh, I like this, is it? Oh, right. So I was born in Chatham. <laughs> Sorry, Chatham. Uh, I mean, love love you, Chatham. It's Chatham's a very interesting place. The Medway Towns are an interesting place. So you've got these... I suppose it's a bit like London. You have these very, very affluent bits and mm. these very, very run-down bits. Right, OK. Uh, and I grew up in the run-down bit, <laughs> obviously. I was dragged up, as it were. But it's a beautiful place. It's got such rich history. Yeah. Um, Dickens, you know, the Rochester Castle, or Keep, however you want to call it. There's so much history there and mm. so many stories that come out of there and so many amazing people have come out of there. Yeah. Uh, I'm not talking about myself. Here. Well, I am. <laughs> I am. Um, but yeah, it was an interesting time growing up. And so you grew up in a Sikh household. Yes. And was it, I mean, religion and being traditional are two mm. sort of quite different things. Was it quite a traditional yeah. upbringing, do you think? It's interesting. I think religion and culture are almost yes, sometimes absolutely. two different things, yeah, aren't absolutely. they? You're right. So um, my parents are first, what you call first generation immigrants. They moved here when they were 20, 21. Right, so they okay. were very, very young, had kids quite early. Um, and did they come together? Yes. Well, actually, my dad moved here a while before then went back to India then my dad and my mum got married and they both came back right so they only ever knew a certain way of life of course their you know formative years had always been growing up in India and then yeah. they've come to this new country and everything's completely new and they're trying to desperately hold on to those mm-hmm. practices and customs and values that they had grown up and I don't think they realised when we were growing me and my brothers were growing up that those things didn't necessarily apply to us in this world. Mm. So they tried to make it traditional. They, you know, they wanted us to stay in touch with our culture and our religion. Yeah. But inevitably, I think they had to accept that we were growing up in a very different time and place. Mm. And we were growing up with slightly different values as well. Yeah. Um, so for me, growing up was quite traditional. Mm. It was, you know, there were lots of cultural expectations and, mm-hmm. you know, I had to, I I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a particularly religious person now, but my family were. Mm-hmm. So I had to kind of be part of that. And it always, when people talk about that, they always talk about it as if it's a negative thing mm. in many ways. For me, I feel like even though it had its sort of restrictions in many ways, it also made me who I am and it gave me the values I have right now. And it made me a part of something that's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old, thousands of years old. Mm. Um, and that also feels quite special. Yeah, I read in an, in an article where you were being interviewed, you were saying about sort of the the work ethic and yes. the family and the yes. sense of community, yes. which is something that yeah. you've sort of taken from that culture or the religion, however you want yeah. to sort of place it. And is something that sort of still runs through you. Absolutely. Service to others. Yes. Is one thing that my family's religion is yeah. very, very, uh, I suppose, strong on. And, you know, there's no point worshipping a deity unless you're going to help the people around you, essentially. I mean, I feel like that often. <laughs> I feel like that's something that's really known about the Sikh community of how community spirited they are yeah. in that, you know, yeah. whenever there's something goes wrong or there's... Yes. A disaster, yeah. or like even when those um, lorry drivers were stuck exactly. going across into Brexit, it was the Sikh community that this were like, it. "You need to eat." Yes, and absolutely. so there's a, there's already that. I've got lots of friends whose parents are sort of first generation yeah. immigrants, and it always strikes me how much courage it must have taken yeah. to lose everything you know yeah. that that part of the world that, that is yours. And so I suppose you try and create that in your four walls. Yeah. 
so that you've got a little bit of something to hold on to. A bit of safety, uh, a bit of familiarity. Yeah. The other thing that, I say I'm not a religious person, but the other thing that my religion Sikhism has taught me growing up is equality about how everybody is equal. It's very strong on gender equality. Right. It doesn't really, as far as I've seen, read and heard, have any views on any other kind of equality. As in, it doesn't discriminate against anybody. Yeah. There is no anti-LGBT plus doctrine in that faith at mm. all. There isn't any. And it's all about treating everybody the same, whether socioeconomically they're in a different place to you, mm-hmm. gender-wise, religion-wise, uh, culture-wise, sexuality-wise. For me, that's what it taught me, is that we are all the same. And those values I've carried through, hopefully, for the rest of my life. I'm sure. (laughs) I know that already from just knowing a little about you. And so were your parents sort of quite strict on education? Yeah, like any kind of Indian parents. Yeah, right. It's such a a cliche to ask. Same applies to Jewish parents, same applies to Greek parents. Any kind of community, I think certain values that come through Mm. aren't there you know you want your kids to do the most that they can or do be the best that they can so with my parents it was all about work ethic education Mm -hmm. it was all it wasn't about rules but it was always like right you're gonna you you should be doing this you need to make the most out of your life you need to get married you need Mm -hmm. to do this so there's always this expectation the whole time yeah that my life was going to be a certain way and actually I thought that was success. I thought that was happiness. I thought, you know, I've got to tick all these boxes and then I'll be happy because Mm. everybody around me is telling that. Yeah. It's only when I grew up and realised, I'm not so sure that's for me. (laughs) But was it, it's it's interesting what you were saying about sort of being in service to others. Was medicine always something that you, because I know you were really bright, like you were an especially bright. Did you go to GCSE when you were in primary school? I I I got to GCSE when I was eight. I mean, that is... But what was it a, in? What was it in? It's Punjabi, which is like my mother yeah. tongue. But there's a reason behind that. So my parents made us go to Punjabi school every Sunday. Right. And uh, the exit strategy was you do your exams and you don't have to go anymore. Right. So okay. I worked my socks <laughs> off. I was like, right, I'm getting out of here. I hate it here. Right. You know? okay. I want my Saturdays back. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so that was my way out. And, right. I, and at the time, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. It's only when I showed my uh, primary school head teacher, I said, yeah, I've got this certificate. Like, can you do that thing? that you do in assembly where you give out swimming certificates to people and stuff because I, I wasn't good at sport I was never going to get one of those um, and he almost fell off his chair it was quite funny and it's only in retrospect when I thought hmm oh right that's really that's really something um, I wouldn't say I was a particularly bright kid I was a kid who could work hard if he had a reason to right and could focus and and I think like a lot of queer kids and I didn't at the time know I was queer we are very good when we know we have to do something we are very good at applying ourselves and making mm-hmm. it happen because we've always had to do that mm-hmm. we've always had to measure up yeah. we've always had to fight harder we've always had to fight harder to be seen fight harder to do better to show our worth mm. i think we've always got that in us we've yeah. always had to fight yeah and that's why I feel like in many ways our community is the strongest community yeah and it's a wonderful community and so people could learn from it because we've had to fight our entire lives to do good, to do well, to do better. Yeah, I feel like when I was a teen, I was I used to do like musical theatre and acting. I mean, just general showing off. But I wanted to be really good at it because I knew that I was queer. Yeah. And I thought, well, if I'm really good at this thing, yeah. then that's the thing yes. that my parents can be proud exactly. of. Exactly. That's the thing. And so, and I think that's a real queer trait. Yeah. In that, whether it's education or sports or, or whatever, it's like, well, listen, I'm doing good at this thing, yeah. and this will sort of balance it out, buffer yeah, it, yeah, yeah, and and take the blinkers off of people 
yes. asking about myself. I'm asking too busy. Yeah. I'm too busy for a boyfriend. I'm, I'm, I'm rehearsing <laughs> half a sixpence this week. I couldn't possibly go on a date. And I think, yeah, I think that that's so true. And so was it medicine? Was it always medicine? Were you always oh. interested in it? Mm. Do you know what? I had that sort of niggling voice, niggling voice, it wasn't niggling, it was my parents saying, you've got to do something with your life, come on, right. no matter what it is, you're going to make it worthwhile. And then at the same time, I was kind of thinking, well, what do I want to do? I was such a confused kid. I had this like artistic, creative, musical mm-hmm. side. Because you can really sing. Well, I like to try. Sing. I enjoy I've it. I've heard you I sing. I enjoy it, I would yeah. say. So I, that was the very first thing I was ever told I was good at was music. Right. And singing, which to a six-year-old kid, I think was really powerful. Yeah. Because before then, I didn't know. I didn't think I was good at anything. I was just bumbling along. And then I've got this other side of me that's quite academic, mm-hmm. that wanted to kind of have a career in something. Yeah. So I was kind of, I suppose I didn't really know what I wanted to do. and But I know that I, I had a fascination with science and the mm-hmm. way things worked and ticked. Uh, and I wanted to help people. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where which part of that came from my queer brain, as it were. Um, probably the helping people and mm-hmm. making lives better bit. So if I married the two of them, I thought, do you know what? The one that sort of ticks all the boxes is medicine. And mm-hmm. I quite like the idea of it, even though nobody in my family was a doctor. Nobody in my family had gone to university, so I didn't have uh. a clue what, what I was doing. But I just thought, right, OK, I'm going to aim as high as I can. Mm-hmm. Let's see what happens. And that has been pretty much my motto my entire career. Just aim as high as you can. Just see what happens. Yeah, try your best. You're only going to end up in a better place. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't end up where you want to end up, it's still going to be better. Yeah, and often I think that you might aim for something. Mm. It's not actually that that you're heading towards, but you'll gather all these things that you learn along the way. You're actually going for something over here. Exactly. But you needed to gather these things in order to get there. Yeah. I mean, it must have made your parents very proud when you thought, because medicine is such a... I mean, I have such a reverence for doctors. (laughs) Whenever I go and see my GP, I'm like, thank you for your time. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. But I also feel like I've got friends that work in the NHS and yeah. I've got friends and nurses and doctors yeah, yeah. and you know I think that it's very important that they're appreciated as well Thank but I, it must have um, it must have been a, an enormous source of pride for your parents I think for my family coming essentially my family come from a long line of farmers right. and then uh, are very working class and my mm-hmm. parents are both factory workers so for them to see all their kids going on and doing things and mm-hmm. going to university and uh, uh, well one of my brothers didn't go to university, but uh, going on and doing stuff and getting careers to them is a is a proud moment, of course. really, because they've worked so hard for that to happen. But when people always, it's really interesting, people always say to me, um, your parents must be very proud of what you've done. And that's a lovely thing to say. But my point is, that pride that they feel is nothing in comparison to the pride I feel for them. Yeah. As two people who came to a country really young, yeah. couldn't barely speak the language, had no qualifications, started from scratch, built up a whole life for them and their three children who then went on and I've had amazing opportunities and they have grown in so many ways from very traditional values to the values they have today. Mm. I couldn't see myself doing that. Mm. That is what I feel proud of, is them. Yeah. Not the other way around. Yeah, and on all of those hardships, you know, people that are lucky enough to have parents like yours. Yeah. Uh, for, for their children Absolutely. so that you can yeah. so you can do all these things and I know it's not everyone's story and no. I know that's not everybody's experience and some people have had very difficult experiences mm. with their parents and carers and I totally acknowledge that and it's heartbreaking sometimes when I hear about it but I acknowledge the fact that I'm very fortunate in mm. many ways and 
I'm very proud yeah. of where I've come from. The thing that we've said a few times on the podcast with different people, especially to like younger folks listening and like sometimes someone might be listening to this right now who's having a tricky time with their parents yeah. at the moment. Yeah. I think it's always worth noting as well is that like sometimes your parents' first response isn't going to be their response no. forever. It's not their best response. And parents aren't perfect. Yeah. No one's taught how to parent. Absolutely. There's no manual. There is no degree or course. Mm. People work it out as they go along and people get it wrong. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people get it really wrong. But remember, even if your parents and your family cannot be there for you, be that intentional or not, there's always someone who is. Mm. There's a chosen family. We know this as queer people. There is a chosen family. And trust me, there's always someone to pick you up. And you're loved regardless. You are always loved. No matter how pants or crap things are, there's always someone who will love you. I couldn't agree more. So let's talk about what was what was Ranj like before the doctor was in front of his name. Um, so what were you like when you were sort of going off to university? Yeah. You went to the university in London, yes, is that I did. right? Yeah, yeah. And so, and I know that it takes everyone says seven years to become a doctor, but um, <laughs> you obviously do some of it in university, and then some of it yeah. you do sort of you shadowing doctors on the ward. Yeah, and... so it's interesting. So you, when when you're a doctor, once you've got out of secondary school and yep. done your A levels and stuff, you do a degree mm-hmm. uh, in medicine. Um, I did two because I could take an extra year and get two degrees in. So I did six years. Mm-hmm. So I got a, a bachelor's in pharmacology and then a degree in medicine at the end of the six years. And then you go into what is basically an apprenticeship model. Yeah. And you can, after a few years, you decide if you stay in hospital or if you go... And is this where you travel around the country? Yes, essentially you're being placed. Usually they try to keep you in the same region if that's what you want. But there is a lot of moving around every six months to a year. Um, What was I like before I got to the qualification? (laughs) Well, when I was going to university, I was so shy. Really? Super, super shy. Do you know what? I, I was that kid that didn't want to stand out. I just didn't because I didn't want to be a target. Mm. in many ways there were so many reasons for me potentially being a target I went to a school where there were some not very nice people Mm -hmm. and I saw some of my friends being bullied and whilst I tried to stand up for them as much as I could I realised I'm a really short little Asian kid who's going to get the crap kicked out of him so I just thought do you know what I just want to fly under the radar the entire time I'm going to knuckle down and get these bloody exams out of the way and get out of here so I was just really shy And I felt like me being shy and kind of cocooning myself just cocooned me. It stopped me being me in many Mm. ways. Uh, I couldn't really flourish. I flourished educationally and that's what I did. I was like, right, I'm just going to channel myself into that. And it's only in later life that I think I feel like, especially when I came out as my authentic self later in life, I thought... Now's the time to kind of open up all those leads. Mm. <laughs> Take away all of those little, you know, safety mechanisms and, and just be who you are. You only get one life. Oh, absolutely. Were you aware of your... Because I've been reading yeah. about you all weekend. I always think it's important when people come on to sort of have as many insights as possible. Mm. Um, but I know that you sort of mentioned that you weren't really aware of your sexuality or it wasn't quite at your no. fingertips was that because of a representational thing yeah so it's, in, it's really interesting so I didn't see any brown queer people growing mm. up I didn't see I mean, them still anywhere loads of, there's not there's yeah. no there's not that many queer people of colour I think around for young people to see and think hang on a second they're just like, like me, me or they feel like 100%. me or look at them they're doing X, Y and Z just happen to be queer yeah. that's the point look at that successful person exactly. that, that looks it's, like me and it's always 
especially when I was growing up, being queer was always painted in a sort of negative light, be in reality or in storylines. Yes. You know, there was always the tragic character, wasn't it? Of course. It? It, was, it, was, yeah. it was AIDS and it was gay bashing. And there it you was... go. It was never painted in a positive light. You never saw it like that. And I think in hindsight, having done a lot of thought and therapy about this now, I think I always knew I felt different. Mm. I always knew I felt different, but I had no queer experience or frame of reference. So for me... All of those thoughts were kind of like, yeah, they're not really part of me. Like, then that's not what I want. Yeah, it's abstract. It's not what I want. I know where my happiness is, or I thought I knew where my happiness was. So I thought, do you know what? And I I guess what ties into this is the idea of, I think of myself as queer, not gay. Because for me, sexuality is a bit more fluid than maybe I thought when I was growing up. When I was growing up, it was either you're gay or you're straight. But mm-hmm. now, actually, I'm thinking, mm, I'm a bit more, a little bit more fluid than that. <laughs> it's not quite as black and white. Um, so I just thought, you know, that part of me, it's not really who I am or who I want to be. Mm-hmm. And so I can put that to one side and I can live a perfectly happy life. Um, and I was, absolutely did. And I, and I, and I lived a wonderful life and I have a, a, a lovely life. And I grew up thinking, right, I know where my happiness is. I know what I need to do. I know what I'm going to do. Uh, You know, I'm going to grow up. I'm going to get a girlfriend, get married, have children, get a career. This is this is my dream. And you mentioned earlier, that's what everyone told you. Yeah. And everyone around me was was. like, that's what's going to happen. And that's happiness. Everybody around me, that's what they were doing. That's what was happening, whether or not they were really happy or not. So I always that was always going to be it. Mm. That was it. I didn't I didn't have any anything else. And it's only, I think, in my sort of mid to late 20s, I started to think, hang on a second. And and I think a lot of that was actually moving away from home and being on my own. Right. And having making my own decisions and doing what I wanted to do and having my own thoughts and meeting all these wonderful people at university. Yeah. Um, it really opened up my mind in many ways. And I thought, hang on a second. There's so much more to life than I realised. And I imagine that if you're you know, moving around a little bit as a doctor or as a, as a junior doctor, it must be constantly meeting different kinds of yeah. people, different types of people that are patients as well yeah. every day. Yeah. So it really exposes you to, you know, the, the whole smorgasbord of life, I imagine. Exactly. From everyone, from every yeah. socio-economical background, every race, every culture, yeah. and, and I suppose gender identity and, yeah. you know, every part of the, you know, LGBTQIA+. plus. Yeah. Community. So, do you think it was 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 it seeing lots of different types That's of people it. as well? Yeah, absolutely. And it was getting queer friends. Yeah, I didn't have queer. Fr- what? I didn't know they were queer when sure. we were growing up. And it turns out I did have queer <laughs> friends. <laughs> we somehow find each other even somehow before we, we even before we tell other. anyone. <laughs> um, and looking back at it, I was like, oh, if only we'd all knew what we know now, we could have had such so much better time I mean we had fun but we had a good time we were really good mates but um yeah it was being I suppose exposed to the world and meeting all these incredible mm. people meeting queer people yeah and thinking they, you know what it really was a moment where I thought they're queer and happy mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah they can't be queer they're queer and happy they're queer and successful they're queer and doing things and they're they're queer and just like me yeah <laughs> absolutely and anybody else and I, I remember I had um gay couple neighbours that used to live downstairs from me and they, you know, I think they really helped me kind of think, do you know what? This is just like anybody else's life. Yeah. It really is. Like this entire time growing up, I've just not been aware of any of this. Yeah. Um, And I think that really helped in my subconscious think that part of you that you haven't entertained, that you haven't acknowledged, 
that's always been there, niggling away probably, mm. that's not a bad thing. It's nothing bad. That can still be part of your dream. That can still be part of your happiness. And then I think over time, that part just kind of became more and more vocal. Yeah. Because if you try and suppress any part of yourself, there comes a time when it wants to scream. Mm. And and it started to scream. Yeah, I can only imagine. And, and I know that from, again, reading articles, mm. um, you said that your marriage was happy and that yes. you had and your wedding was one of the happiest yeah, days of your was. life yeah. but i guess that obviously having a happy marriage with a woman yeah. did you think right well this is it this is i've got the job mm. i'm a doctor i've got the partner yeah. i'm happy was it like there was a little piece of the yeah, jigsaw missing that's it that's yeah. ex- exactly it i got there and i thought I've got this incredible partner. Mm-hmm. I'm really happy. Yeah. You know, I've got a wonderful life. I've got a wonderful career. I've got everything I dreamed of. Yeah. Why am I not entirely happy? Yeah. This was the promise. Yes. Yeah. And I got there and I thought, this isn't what it's supposed to be. And then I think gradually over time, things just started to kind of, the cracks appeared and things started to gradually crumble. And yeah. I was thinking, what is going on? Like, I remember I went through really low times, actually, then, because I thought, look, I'm a, de- I'm a nice person. I'm trying to do really nice things by other people. I'm trying to live a decent life. I'm doing everything I was supposed to do. Why am I now feeling like this? And I remember thinking, when I, when I came out and when I went through a really dark time, I was like, why am I being punished? Mm. Especially growing up in a faith sort of community, in a religious community, I thought, why am I being punished? What have I done wrong? Mm. I've done everything that you asked me to do. And I've done everything that I was supposed to do. And I'm sitting here with tears in my eyes. Thinking, why, why are you doing this to me? It's not fair. Yeah. Um, it's so strange. When I was... So my marriage basically broke down uh, for lots of reasons. But one of them was, I think, I wasn't happy. Mm. And I remember thinking, going going through this period where I just... I was so lost in many ways. And I clung on to one thing I had from childhood that used to give me a bit of hope, and that was my faith, weirdly. And I remember sitting in a temple, a Sikh temple, with tears in my eyes saying, why why are you doing this to me? I've tried to be a decent person. I've done everything I was supposed to. I've worked really, really hard. Why? This just isn't fair. This isn't fair. And I remember having a realisation that actually maybe you've been doing this all wrong. Maybe that wasn't what you were supposed to do. And maybe now owning your truth entirely is what you should be doing. And that's where you're supposed to be. It was weirdly the thing that probably held me back was the thing initially was the thing that opened me up. And I thought the, the best thing that you can do in your life is be true. And then it really opened up. Yeah. But that must have been a hell of a journey to get there. Yeah, yeah, it was really tough. Really, yeah. really tough. I fractured at that point, I think, yeah. then. Everything came tumbling down. You can imagine, right? If the oh. core of your being has always been, right, this is what I want and this is where my happiness totally. is. You get there and you're like, I feel like this This is nothing Yeah. like it was supposed to be. I have nothing at all. It was a really painful process. I'm not just talking about myself. I'm talking about my partner. Yes, of For course. Her, yeah. It was really difficult and must have been painful to to hear all of that because she'd done nothing wrong. <laughs> Likewise, she had done absolutely nothing wrong. We had a great relationship in many ways, but I think it was inevitably, even though 
it was so great in so many ways. I think inevitably it would have broken down because as we grew, I think we grew apart. Mm. But yeah, it was tough. It was really, really hard. That took a long time for me to unmake and then remake myself. And the reason I remade myself, the reason I could, was my queer community. They were the ones that picked up the pieces because nobody else could. Nobody else knew how to. My friends were amazing. Mm -hmm. My family were actually really, really good. My brothers were the first people I came up to, some of the first. They were really, really good. But I needed my chosen family, as it were, my queer community to kind of say, look, right, okay, let's show you the way. Yeah. Because we've been through this. And come on, come with us. And I think that it's about seeing people that, that are like you. This is it. It's That's why so, visibility is so important. And so then was it important when you sort of began to have a, a television career? Obviously yeah. it sort of started with, aimed at more sort of youth stuff, children's stuff. Yeah. Was it really important to you that you were visible? Yes. So I never came out of university thinking I want to be on telly. Right. <laughs> it was kind of, in a weird way, uh, it was, I think, my creative side trying to fight to get yeah. out. Yeah trying to think I want to do something else because I was doing medicine full time and I was like again why isn't this making me happy (laughs) as in I I love my job but it's not making me happy in fact sometimes it's making me really unhappy so I needed an outlet and I again it was all about letting the rest of me out yeah Um, and that's kind of where the media and, and stuff came out and then I just thought as it grew over time it started as a hobby but as it grew over time I thought you've got to be visible you have to be because if you're going to do anything with all the stuff that you've been through and learned, put it into practice. Don't make sure that no one else has to do that. Mm. And that was the reason I did the article in Attitude magazine. It was after I'd my first gay relationship had broken, uh, we'd broken up, and I thought, do you know what? You don't want anybody else to be going through this and making the mistakes, as it were, that you've made. You need to be open. You need to be the visible one. You need to say, here's my example. I wouldn't call, ever call myself a role model, as it were, but but at least share with others who may be going through similar things so that they don't have to have the pain of it, but they can still learn. Mm. I think you're, I mean, I don't know whether you like the term, but I think you're definitely a role model. <laughs> I always think that I puts think, pressure on people. <laughs> well, no, but I think that, like, let's take the pressure away, but I just think that it's, you know, as two queer people, mm. I love seeing queer people succeeding and yes. queer people, you know, doing them and being themselves. But, you know, I can only imagine what it would be like to someone that is having similar feelings to yeah. you, like to you, someone that's maybe from the same community. You know, I can only imagine what a beacon of light mm. you're, you know, you being on the sofa at yeah. ITV. Yeah. And that's the thing with with shows like um, This Morning mm. and those kids shows that you do, you're in people's living rooms. Yes. I think that's the thing that is so brilliant about everything that you do your sort of charm and your reassurance makes people feel like they know you like I think that yeah. I met you really briefly at the LGBT awards <laughs> that I was, was like hi it. that was it and then I was like oh he doesn't know me <laughs> but I, I, I recognised you and I thought oh my gosh I've, I've seen her I, I, it's my, my silly brain not doing what it's supposed to be doing but, but I was like I was like we know each other and I was like I don't think that you do I think you just you just have that that sort of yeah. um, familiarity I suppose yeah and I think yeah. that's the thing that that is what translates to people that aren't like us yes as well yeah that make that reminds them that we're all the same but this is it and i feel hugely privileged for doing that actually for being in people's living rooms yeah. and doing what i do it's so lovely especially when you talk about the kids stuff that i've done i get so many messages from parents and families saying i'm so glad you're there yeah I i'm bet. so glad you're there because my child gets to see someone uh on screen 
who's authentic, who just happens to be queer, mm-hmm. who's doing X, Y, and Z. And that's oh, that's lovely to hear. But there's a part of me that also thinks that it's queer people proving ourselves again mm-hmm. and showing everyone that we can. Yes. That actually, guess what? We're okay. Yeah. We're not dangerous. Yes. You know, <laughs> we're not all going to die of some hideous thing, like which is what it was like at one point, which is genuinely sure. what people thought, that if you were queer, your life was over. And it was part of me saying, look, we're showing you who we are. We've shown you who we've always been. And it's lovely when it relaxes and kind of reassures people. But at the same time, I don't think it should be up to us to do that. I know exactly I what you mean. It feels it feels like a like a bittersweet thing to me. Like like we've always been here. Yeah. We've always been doing this. I'm glad you're now you can see it and you you're in that right, you know, mindset where you can understand it for what it is. And I hope we get more of this. Yes. And I hope your kids see more of it because they need to see just how amazing the world can be. Yeah. And LGBTQ+ plus people are part of that. Yeah. But hopefully in the next generation on from us or a couple of generations on from us, because of, you know, not that you necessarily wanted to pave the way and not that you necessarily (laughs) wanted the mantle of a role model, but because you have been there, Mm. it means that those people won't be meeting us for the first time via this morning because yes. they never have we were always there it's like we're, we're, we're always people, there people have said to me like, come off stage oh I've never met, never met a lesbian I was like no you've never known you, that you've met a exactly. lesbian <laughs> like, and that's what I want to see yeah. I want to see representatives from all parts of yeah. life you know for a long time in media it was always gay men yes wasn't it yeah. and it was often gay white men yeah of course you know, absolutely because that was palatable yes. you could do that and they were always the comedy character of course it was it was camp it was yes. it, you know which has a massive tradition in British comedy yes. you yeah. know a dame all that exactly. stuff that felt totally desexualised yeah it's your friend down the pub he's yeah. not he's not he's harmless yes yeah. it was the harmless gay yes. you could get exactly. on board with and, you know, you, you want to sort of go, well, we're, yeah, we are harmless, but at the same time, we're, you know, we're sometimes acerbic and we're sometimes, yes, yes. you know, we can be mean and we can do things wrong and we're not all fluffy and yes. we're just like anyone else. Exactly. We're just like anyone else. And actually, do you know what? You've probably met yes, a lot sure. of us. And here's some more people that you may never have seen, you know, queer disabled people, of, queer people of, of colour, course, yeah. queer women. We just don't see enough of that. I'm trying, um, Ranch. I'm I know, trying, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's. I feel like there is a kind of awakening in many ways happening. Hundred percent, especially amongst young people. Young oh. people these days. I know kids get a bad rap. Teens get a really bad rap. They're so so open-minded. Totally. And understanding. And I hate the word tolerant, <laughs> but um, accepting. Completely. I, I love that. Well, my. You know, my daughter obviously has two mums and, you know, we we have loads of friends that are straight, gay, somewhere in between, queer. Mm. And the children are so accepting of two mummies, two daddies. They don't care. No one cares. And I've got a friend who is telling me that in... Children don't think about the anatomy of love. Of course they don't. They don't <laughs> they think don't. anything. They just think, oh, they're in love. The, one of my friends was telling me that she's got a little girl who's about seven and she came home from school one day and they were talking about playing in, in the playground and she said, some of the boys are sometimes mummy and mama. Sometimes two of the boys are mummy and mama. Sometimes but, and you're just like, yeah, of course, <laughs> so because why? Why would it be any other exactly. way? To them, that's like taking on a part. Today I'm going to be this. Today I'm going to be yes. that. 
And, you know, that's the thing, I think, when people talk about, like, protecting the children. and But that's you know, because they're sexualizing everything. Uh, totally. And they're protecting them from sexualized feelings and topics and emotions. Children do not care totally. about that. Children care about relationships. They care about safety. They care yeah. about love. They care about protection. They care about security. They care about being heard. Yeah. And... They care about play. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. You know, stop putting our adult thoughts <laughs> into the mix because that's not what they're going through. And the only time <laughs> it ever happens is with straight people when they say, like, "Oh, he'll be a little heartbreaker." Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're like, "You're you're doing this you're now. Doing you're... you're doing it." Like so many people. Like my brother did this with my nephew recently, and I thought mm, that's not okay. He said, "Have you got a girlfriend?" And my yeah. nephew's like three, and I was like, "Don't be." And my, actually, my other brother and my sister in law were like, "Don't say that." Yeah, he weird, may not right? have a girlfriend. He may not want a girlfriend. You know, he's also three. He's got <laughs> he's, other things on his mind. He's also three. But also, like, I was like, yeah, it's it, classic point. And what I loved was that one brother. He's he's brilliant. He was one of the first people I came out to. And he's been great. He's awesome. And um, the fact that he said that, and then the other brother and sister and all were like, no, I love that. I was yeah. like, yes, this is progress. Absolutely. <laughs> and this is this is where we're going. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for talking to me. I, I feel always... like we could talk about so much more. Oh, I feel like we could talk forever. <laughs> I know that you've got to go and sing somewhere for something that I'm not allowed to talk about. So one of the questions that we always ask, I say we, it's just me that makes this podcast. I always <laughs> ask at the end of the show, is if you could, if you could give either a version of yourself or someone that's listening that's having a similar experience to what you've experienced. And I'm thinking about that version of Ranj just before he went to university when he was not I loved what you said about when you came out and you like took all the lids off of everything yeah and you know this version of you is like the lids are on really tight and they're screwed on and like if you could reach out to him and um you know put your arm around him and give him a bit of encouragement or a bit of support or someone that's listening that's having that that, whose lids are on very tight at the moment what would you say or even I suppose um, uh, a parent or carer oh, that might be listening of a young person yeah, who's absolutely. On. you are exactly who you are supposed to be you don't have to change for anybody there is so much amazing inside you that you just need to show everyone no one is born inherently bad or deficient it doesn't happen you are born with potential and possibility we just the rest of us need to let you do that it's our job to create an environment to enable you to thrive and be your best self. You don't have to do anything. You are already the perfect version of who you are supposed to be. I mean, what a perfect way to end the conversation. Thank you so much for talking to me. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed that chat. I certainly did. What a great guy. What lovely advice. Oh, I just, yeah. I think he said it all, didn't he? Um, please join me next week. If you want to get in touch with me, you can. The email is hello at com. I'm not really on Twitter. I find it a bit of a nasty place, but I am on Instagram. If you want to find me there, it's Susie Ruffle Comedy. I am on Twitter, but I just tweet about shows that I'm doing. But if you want to come along to a show, please do. Uh, my other podcast is Like Minded Friends, me and Tom Allen. Lots of chit chat and fun. Maybe you'd like that as well. But I will speak to you next week. As always, thank you for listening. Bye bye.